For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this evening is Salvation Belongs to Our God. This is part two, and we're working through this text, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. Uh, We're looking at the the church now in her heavenly worship, and we're going to consider each of these sections. We're not going to get very far tonight. We probably have one more uh, sermon, maybe two, uh, in this text before we wrap up chapter 7, but I pray uh, that this will be a help to you, again, as what we're, we're, we're... We want the book uh, to do uh, for us by the Spirit what God intended through the book, which is to encourage his church, encourage us in our time of testing, encourage us in our own times of tribulation. Uh, Revelation has certainly um, uh, been an example of that, has done that. Uh, But we also want you to understand your eschatology. There is such a blessing to understanding the Bible's teaching on the subject of eschatology, and Revelation is a, a part of that, not the sum total of that. But you uh, lock these, some of these themes and subjects down. It's going to really help you as you are developing a biblical eschatology. So I hope to do that. We want to walk a little slowly. We want to help you with some of these subjects, some of these points. Uh, some of this is going to overlap, and you'll hear some repetition. But all that should serve, I pray, to lock it down in your mind. So work with us as we go through the book, and let's uh, lock down our eschatology, okay? Let's learn here from this text. So I want to read our text together. We want to pray and then dig in and see what the Lord has for us in this section. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a beautiful uh, picture of uh, heaven, isn't it? And what the Lord promises us. Let's pray and then let's uh, consider our text together. Uh, Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Uh, thank you for this uh, blessed vision that you've given the Apostle John that uh, now we have the benefit and the blessing of participating in or coming alongside and uh, peering over his shoulder, as it were, as we uh, glimpse or peer into Scripture uh, to see the wondrous sights that you have uh, disclosed to us on the pages of your word. And uh, we're, we're grateful for that, Lord. Grateful for this uh, picture of the church. Uh, those who are described as uh, before the throne, those who will never hunger, never thirst anymore. Um, 
the lamb in their midst, the shepherd leading them, leading them to living fountains of waters, God wiping away every tear from their eyes, Lord, that is so encouraging to us. We look forward to that day at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and at the consummation of the everlasting kingdom which shall not be destroyed. And we look forward to that with great joy and gladness in our hearts, anticipating your soon return. And we thank you, Lord, for this time we have tonight to consider these things. Keep our eyes fixed upon eternal and unseen things in the heavens that we might not be bogged down with the uh, affairs and the, the course of this world. Lord, help us keep our eyes focused on you as we look to you in faith for these things. May you be glorified in our sight uh, and may your people be edified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Salvation belongs to our God, part two, Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 17. Uh, it's good to be back with you in our study of the revelation of Jesus Christ Sunday evenings. Uh, And it has been, uh, for me personally, I hope it has been for you, it's been a joy to marvel, if you will, with the Apostle John in consideration of the visions now that dominate this book. Visions that are intended to comfort the church, visions that are intended to strengthen the church in her time of testing in the wilderness, in her time of tribulation. Visions intended, brothers and sisters, to compel joy. Uh, to compel longing in the heart of the Christian for the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that should be our experience as we meditate on these things. It's a wonder and it is a marvel how God in infinite wisdom draws, as it were, to a final close the tapestry, the entire tapestry of redemptive history and how in the book of Revelation, for example, we can step back from that grand tapestry and see from a, a, an objective viewpoint, so to speak, how the fabric, all of the threads of that grand tapestry are woven together uh, in redemptive history, all culminating, all uh, culminating in the consummated work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the establishment of his everlasting kingdom. It is a a grand picture, Uh, Revelation being the capstone of the canon, pulling all of this revelation together uh, in this one book. It's um, been magnificent uh, to consider these things. Now there's uh, an overview of that tapestry, if you will, in each of the seven literary cycles that comprise the book. If you remember from uh, our discussion of the structure of the book of Revelation, There are seven literary cycles uh, that make up the book. We're in the second of those seven cycles. Each cycle, you know, an approximation of the span of time covered by each cycle would be from Christ in his incarnation, Christ in his first advent, really to Christ in his second advent, Christ in his return, and in the consummation of his kingdom, the kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Each of those cycles now from the second cycle to the seventh, dealing with that span of redemptive history, if you will. We've been introduced uh, so far to a vision of that consummated kingdom in our study of this second literary cycle. We've been given a vision in chapter 7 now of that consummated kingdom, the church in her heavenly worship. Between the loosing of the sixth and seventh seals, the action, so to speak, has been paused Uh, the malevolent tribulation poured out by the four horsemen, the crying of the tribulation saints under the altar of incense, rising to God who has determined vengeance upon those who dwell on the earth, those cataclysmic judgments accompanying the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that now has been paused for a moment. Our attention is now diverted, shifted for a moment 
As we answer the question introduced by those facing judgment at the return of Christ, that question we, we find in Revelation chapter 6, look at verse 15, where the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's an important question. Who is able to stand? In Revelation chapter 6, as the four horsemen began to pour out their judgments upon the earth, who is able to stand? In the end of Revelation chapter 6, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ return, prepared to judge those who dwell on the earth, who is able to stand? Well, Revelation 7 is essentially a literary interlude written in answer to that question. Who is able to stand? Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer to that question is, apart from Jesus Christ, no one stands right? Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, no one stands. But here in chapter 7, we find a people surrounding the throne of God, and they're standing before the throne. They're clothed in white robes. They have palm branches in their hand, and they're standing there in worship. Who are these people? Who is able to stand? Verse 9, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verses 1 through 8 in chapter 7 depict the church in typological terms. This is where biblical theology comes in and where a good, healthy, biblical theology is essential to understanding your eschatology. This is where biblical theology comes in. The church is depicted in typological terms. It's the church in her warfare, the church in her earthly wilderness sojourn, so to speak, the church during her time of testing, the church militant arrayed, arrayed for battle, the church as followers of the lion from the tribe of Judah, and Judah listed first there in Revelation 7. And we're given the reason, then, that she stands. The reason that she stands is because they are the slaves of God who have been sealed by God on their foreheads. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, they've been kept, as it were, preserved from, by God from the hour of testing, the hour of trial that is coming upon those who dwell on the earth. Now, in verses 9 through 17, then, we then see the typological fulfillment, the anti-type, if you will, from shadow to substance. We see a vision of the church gathered around the throne of God. Two visions, same group of people essentially, right? The anti-type of that Old Testament typology uh, from prefiguring shadow to consummated substance. And again, we see why biblical theology is so necessary. A great multitude, John hears the sound of those numbered, those sealed. He turns and looks and behold a great multitude which no one can number from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. From shadow to substance. The language there, that language depicting the fulfillment of the promise that was made all the way back in the Old Testament to Abraham. It's in fulfillment of God's promise. Uh, God brought Abraham outside. Look to the heavens, Abram. Right? Count the stars if you can number them. 
If in you and in your seed, God promises, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What we see in verse 9 then is a fulfillment of that promise, a multitude, a great multitude which no one can number of every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Those who have come out of the great tribulation, those who have endured to the end, those whom he has preserved for himself. This is the church in the worship of heaven, the church having endured, the church having overcome, the church given the crown of life, the church triumphant, the church having entered her rest. Those who have washed their robes white in the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Who are those? Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ across the ages, right? From Adam to you and I, those who put their faith and trust in the lamb. Two visions of the same group. Now that, brothers and sisters, should encourage us. That's what it's intended to do. It's intended to encourage us. The church standing in the very presence of God. One day that's going to be you and I. The church standing in the presence of God. Where everything, everything comes to its completed and consummated fulfillment. uh, To its consummated end and to its decreed purpose through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful to his word. Amen? God does not lie, cannot lie. Everything that God has promised will come to pass. And that includes us. Romans chapter 8. Right? Sunday mornings. There's no one and no thing that will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I will be there. We're going to be there in that assembly. And who's going to be there with us? The Lord Jesus Christ singing hymns of praise. Looking forward to that day. This is John's vision of the church triumphant. And we are considering once again this evening now that vision as we pick up the account in verse 13. The people of God cry out in worship, verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The heavenly host, an innumerable host of angels, adds their voice to the praise, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And then, verse 13, one of the elders... In other words, one of the 24 elders that we saw standing before the throne in worship in, in Revelation chapter 4, right? Chapter 4, verse 4. We determined that those elders were most likely human representatives of the Old Testament and New Testament saints. The Lord Jesus Christ said himself of the, the disciples that they would reign and rule and reign with him on 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. These 24 elders, most likely representative of Old Testament, New Testament saints, representatives of the church, And one of those elders, verse 13, answered, saying to the apostle John, who are these? Who are these arrayed in white robes? That's an important question. Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? And I said to him, John said to him, sir, you know. (laughs) John likely knows the answer. John has likely uh, figured it out. But he decides that it would be wise to defer back to the elder who certainly knows. And so John, deference, respect, humility, thinks it wise, sir, you know. Um, As I thought about that, there's so many connections in the book of Revelation to Ezekiel. Um, So many connections to the prophets, but in particular, the prophet Ezekiel. And if you remember Ezekiel 37, when God brings Ezekiel to the valley of dry bones, and there's this bone, they're exceedingly dry, and God turns to Ezekiel, and he asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? How did Ezekiel respond? Lord, you know. <laughs> you know. It's, it's, a, 
there's a deference in that answer. There's a humility in that answer, but there's also a connection in the language. That valley of dry bones, God made alive from the dead. The bones began to rattle. Sinew uh, began to connect the bones together. Flesh came upon those bones. God breathed life into them. And that is, brothers and sisters, a picture of restored Israel. That, those dry bones stood up and are described as an exceedingly great army. Who are those bones? <laughs> when that restoration takes place, when that restoration is pictured in Ezekiel 37, what army is it that is being pictured by that restoration? It's the same army we see here in Revelation chapter 7. It's the people of God restored by God an exceedingly great army. That's the people of God in the restoration, in the regeneration. We'll talk about that more as we have time uh, later going through the book. It's um, the disciples. I thought about this connection also. The disciples, after Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, a couple of days later, the disciples are in Galilee. Multitude following Jesus is hungry. And so the the disciples turn to Jesus and say, all we have is seven loaves and a few of these little (laughs) fish. They defer. They don't want to come out and say, hey, Jesus, will you do what you did the other day? We need to feed the multitude. They defer, right? And this is sort of what John is doing in his answer. It's sort of what Ezekiel is doing in his answer. Sir, you know. Lord, you know. It's a good way to answer, I think. Who are these and where do they come from? Sir, you know. So he said to me, in answer to the question, He said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In answer to the question, the elder refers to two identifying characteristics. First, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Second, these are the ones who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. We're going to consider the first of these identifying characteristics tonight. We'll save the second for uh, the next time that we're together. First, who are those standing before the throne in the worship of God? Who are those clothed in white, palm branches in their hands? These are the ones, the elder says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Notice first, that word great is preceded by the definite article, the. It's not just those who have come out of tribulation or come out of suffering. It's those who have come, come out of the great tribulation. In other words, what's being spoken of here, rather than a subjective, nebulous, or undefined experience of tribulation, the words here seem to point to a defined, objective period of tribulation. A definable, objective period of tribulation. For that, let me give you an example. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. And again, The book of Revelation, relying heavily upon Daniel, we see this also referenced in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, we're going to begin there at verse 1. At that time, verse 1, Michael, the angel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, And at that time, verse 1, there shall be a time of trouble. 
That's what we're dealing with, a time of distress, a time of tribulation. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There's much to be said about the connection of Daniel chapter 1, uh, verse, or Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and these visions of John in Revelation. Some of these things are, they're overlapped a bit. Um, that, that issue of prophecy, looking off into the distance, and some of that prophecy begins to be overlapped. But Daniel, Daniel makes us aware, Daniel chapter 12, of a future time of trouble, a definite time of trouble, a definite or defined time of tribulation, a time at which the people of God, whose names are recorded in the book, a time during which they will be delivered. And many of us, if you're like me, many of us have been brought up under dispensational premillennialism. Uh, we've been more or less duped by a pretty pretty successful marketing machine over several decades now, including books and movies. And it's easy, if, if that's where much of your um, understanding of eschatology comes from, it's very easy to misread or misunderstand the book of the Revelation. In that system of unbiblical thought, where there are secret returns of Jesus Christ, where tribulational raptures of the church exist without a text, they would have you believe and this is something that I've come out of myself, mind you, they would have you believe that tribulation is something that happens in the last seven years of history. And if it happens in the last seven years of history, then it doesn't apply to you unless you find yourself wrapped up in it. Great tribulation, then, is more of a title, if you will, that is reserved for the last three and a half years of redemptive history. And that certainly doesn't apply to you. You've been raptured out uh, before the seven or before the three and a half, if you're in Christ. But now, as we've seen before, we continue to point out everywhere, everywhere in the New Testament, that that word for tribulation is used, it is speaking of a time that comprises the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to his second coming, to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's tribulation that takes place during that time, from the Lord's first coming to the Lord's second coming. And it's related to trouble or distress, trials and tribulations that arise within the church and it refers to trouble and persecution that arises from without the church, from within and from without. But it's something that the church must overcome. It's something that the church endures, she must overcome. In fact, in the first of those seven literary cycles, as the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing the seven churches, he's calling them to be overcomers, calling them to endure tribulation, to endure trial, to endure testing and to be overcomers. And he who overcomes, I'll give to him the crown of life, right? Uh, to the point where in Revelation chapter two, I believe it's to the church at Thyatira, that the Lord in judgment upon sin in that church promises to throw that woman on a sick bed, a uh, sick bed of tribulation, if you will, <laughs> going to throw them into deep distress. 
But listen to these passages of Scripture. Again, when you just do a word study of this word flipsis in the Greek, a word that refers to tribulation, you'll find it referring everywhere to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming, in his earthly ministry, to our time today. John chapter 16, verse 1. Listen. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Now, who's he speaking to? Speaking to his disciples in the first century, and that's what they experienced, amen? They experienced great tribulation, Great tribulation. Verse 3, And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. So he explains that period, explains what they're going to face. And in verse 33, he says this, These things, all of these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. That's a promise. That's a promise. That promise applies to you if you put your faith and trust in Christ. It's called counting the cost, brothers and sisters. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you turn from your sin and you turn to trust him, count the cost. Why? Because everyone who desires to live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. You will be persecuted. You will face many tribulations. That's a promise from the word of God. In the world, you will have tribulation. But what does the Lord say after that? But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, right? We, we don't overcome in and our, of ourselves. We can't overcome a paper bag in and of ourselves. We're indwelt by the Spirit, and we have the Lord Jesus Christ. We overcome in him. He's overcome for us, right? We follow him by faith, and we overcome through him. Acts chapter 14, verse 21, uh, Paul Barnabas have wrapped up their initial, their first missionary journey, and they want to go back through the cities, go back through strengthening the converts, strengthening those church plants. So in verse 21, Acts 14, 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, Enter the kingdom of God. Now, can you imagine? You're a new convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've just put your faith and trust in him. Maybe you've got a mixed up notion in your head that now that I've turned to Jesus Christ, everything is going to be great. I'm going to get that new truck. We're going to win the football game. My wife's going to get pregnant. We're going to have a beautiful family. I'm going to get up, raise it, my job. I'm going to get a promotion, right? Everything is, is that how it goes? No. You know, a few minutes later, you lose all of your friends. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, you're disowned from your family. And then a few minutes later, you know, we face tribulation, we face trial, we face persecution. And so if you're that person, like those Hebrew Christians, the Hebrew Christians of the diaspora, who face the plundering of their goods, joyfully, I might add, those Hebrew Christians who were severely persecuted and they were tempted to turn back to Judaism from the Lord Jesus Christ for relief from the persecution, how are they to understand their circumstances if it weren't for the Lord saying it is with or through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God? It's, it's to know that from the Lord himself is so helpful. For the disciples to faith, face the ministry that they were going to have, face certain death, they're going to drink from the cup that Christ drank from. To face that with the Lord having told you ahead of time, 
Brothers, this is what is coming. I'm telling you now so that you'll not be made to stumble. I'm telling you beforehand so that you can be encouraged. This is what you're going to face, right? That's encouraging to the church. We're going to face tribulation and that tribulation is ramping up. It's coming. And so when we face difficulty, we already have, we face persecution. I got a, an email before I walked in the doors of this church. Hey, I was with this person. They said all kinds of slanderous accusations against you and that church over there. I'd like to talk to you about it. That happened to me before I walked in the room tonight. We're going to face persecution. So when we face persecution, isn't it an encouragement that the Lord told us it would be so? And that the Lord is sovereign over all those things that take place and that we can face it through faith in him. He himself faced that garbage, right? The nonsense that is vomited out of the mouth of this world. He himself faced that. So that should be very encouraging to us when we face our own examples of tribulation, right? Very encouraging to us. In the parable of the sower, the seed sown in rocky places endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, and it will, immediately that one stumbles. It stumbles. Turn with me to the Lord's Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Matthew 24. In Matthew 24... The Lord is going to explain what takes place and when. He's going to answer a very direct question from his disciples with a very direct answer. Verse 3, he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Did that happen in the first century? Yes, and it happens today. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars in the first century? Yes. In our day? Yes. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That happened in their day? Absolutely it does. That happened in our day? Absolutely it does. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Was that true then? Is it true today? Yes. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. That word means birth pains. What do we know about birth pains? They increase in frequency and in severity and in intensity and in frequency and in severity until the birth comes. In this case, the birth of a new creation, the birth of a new age, right? That's what we're waiting for. Birth pains. Verse nine, then then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Is that true of the disciples? Yes. True of Christians today? Happening in the world right now. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That could be a, a descriptive statement of our, name, our age right there, right? But he who endures to the end shall be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. What is happening during this age? The gospel of the kingdom is being preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And what are we waiting for then? The end to come. Incidentally, the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation are the only two places that refer to great tribulation. In particular, the articular, the great tribulation. In Matthew 24, The Lord uses the word great there to describe that period of intense tribulation that occurs just before the return of Christ. Think with me. 
Verse 15, Matthew 24, verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the Lord instructs you to look back there. Verse 21. Then, upon that sign, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Do you recognize that language from any, anywhere? That's Daniel chapter 12, right? And he uses the word great tribulation there to speak of the intensity of the, the, the tribulation. Verse 29, and immediately after the tribulation of those days, you will see the return of Jesus Christ. You see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And we know from the Lord's description of tribulation as birth pains that tribulation will increase in frequency and in severity until the end. So the Lord uses the word great in Matthew 24 to describe the intensity of that tribulation. It's going to begin intense. They're going to kill you thinking they do God's service, right? It's going to increase in frequency and in severity until after the sign of that abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then there's going to be such an intensity of tribulation that this world has never seen before. And it's immediately after the tribulation of those days that you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you see? It's the days of that period shortened for the sake of the elect. It's days, those are the days just prior to the consummated birth of a new age. In Revelation chapter seven, however, the word great appears to be used instead to denote this great period in redemptive history, the lengthy period between the first advent and the second advent of Jesus Christ is described as the great tribulation, one in which the apostle John describes himself as our companion. Chapter one, verse nine, your companion in the tribulation. <laughs> For Paul in the New Testament, tribulation is always a present reality for Christians. So what we see then in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 is not, what we see in Revelation 7 9 is not an historically isolated group of martyrs. That's not what we're seeing there. They're described as having white robes, palm branches in their hands. They're not going to suffer pain anymore or heat or God wiping away every, who is God describing there? He's describing the church. What we see there is the church as we've already established and it's the church that is described as having come out of the great tribulation. Now, in the few minutes I have left, and if, if you've been left behind in that um, dispensational misunderstanding of Revelation, I want to give you one more grip, something to hold on to, so that you can climb out of that hole, okay? Daniel's 70th week. Turn with me quickly to Daniel chapter 9. And again, just one more connection. You've got to think through these things and work them out, and it will become clear to you. I know Daniel is in my Bible. There it is, Daniel chapter 9. Okay. In the book of Daniel, we have the children of Israel coming to the end of their Babylonian exile. Seventy years have been appointed for exile in Babylon. Daniel begins to pray. And essentially, essentially, the thought might go something like this. 70 years is coming to an end. Is it at this time, Lord, that you will restore the kingdom to Israel and establish the Messiah on the throne of David? That might have been what Daniel was thinking. 70 years is at an end. We're going to be restored into the promised land. He's going to bring us back 
The time has come to an end. At this time, Lord, will you restore the kingdom? Will you establish the kingdom under the rule of Messiah? And the answer that comes from the angel is not 70 years, Daniel, but 70 weeks of years. Peter to the Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times, Lord? No, Peter, 70 times seven. In this case, Lord, how many years? 70 years? No, 70 weeks of years. Now, already, already that establishes this period of time as something that um, is somewhat figurative, right? Because we're using figurative language now to describe the end times. And so in uh, Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, 70 weeks. And we know from the context, those are 70 weeks of years, seven years to each week. That 70 weeks are determined to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Has that been done yet? Not yet, right? It hasn't been consummated. It hasn't been completed yet. There hasn't been a complete end of sins quite yet. There hasn't been um, a, a, a kingdom brought in of everlasting righteousness. Not quite yet. It's, not, it's been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. There are 70 weeks determined, verse 24, to seal up vision and prophecy. What does that mean? Close it up, it's done. Right? It's finished. It's completed. 70 weeks to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, I'm not a math major, but uh, how many does that equal up to? Okay, you're not math majors either. It's 69 weeks, all right? (laughs) Um, Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62, 69. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Uh, That is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happens um, soon after Messiah is cut off in AD 70. Um, that prince who is to come, there is a messianic interpretation of this text that um, makes that prince there in verse 26, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the Lord Jesus Christ because if you flip back, that very same language is used in Daniel chapter 8, I believe it is, to speak of the abomination of desolation as the prince of the people, okay? So that prince is not Messiah. That prince is the one uh, who destroys the abomination of desolation. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. How many weeks do we have left? There are 70 weeks determined. 69 are here described. We have one week remaining, don't we? Daniel's 70th week. Now often in the book of Daniel, we don't have time to get into this tonight, but in the book of Daniel, that one week is divided in two. Just like he divided the first 69 weeks into 62 weeks and seven weeks, right? He divides the final week, the 70th week, into two parts. Times, times, and half a time, meaning one year, two years, three and a half years, right? And the final three and a half years divides them in two. And they're referred to by different uh, references. One is um, uh, a week of years to refer to the whole Uh, times, times, and half a time to refer to one half or the other, or a period of 1,260 days. And this, again, there is no gap between the time that Messiah is cut off 
and the beginning of that 70th week. There's no reason to insert a gap there and we wait who knows how long before the 70th week begins. The 70th week began when Messiah was cut off. Now, how do we know that? What is a key to our understanding to know what time period we're talking about? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And again, these things are important because when you start putting these pieces together, your eschatology starts making sense, okay? Revelation uh, chapter 12. And listen, um, as I read, and I, this imagery should be very familiar with the, to us and easily discernible. Right? This is not uh, overly mysterious. Revelation 12, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head a garland of 12 stars. I wonder who that could be. Right? You could think of that as Israel, uh, the 12 tribes represented by the 12, a garland of 12 stars. You could think of that as Mary, if you wanted to. Right? Uh, again, um, a woman about to give birth. Being with child, verse 2, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign, verse 3, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten hordes, seven diadems on, our, on his head. I wonder who that is. Uh, later, we're told exactly who that is. That is the devil, that dragon of old. With his tail, verse 4, he drew a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Who is the child that Israel gives birth to or that Mary gives birth to? that the, the devil is standing there waiting to devour. Who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? We're speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that, that him ready to devour in the actions of Herod. The wise men come to him. Um, you know, tell me of this king, where will he be born? <laughs> and when he, they don't come back to him, uh, telling him that he's been born, he sends his uh, goons out to murder every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two. That happened, in history, Herod murdered those children to get to Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the dragon waiting to devour him as soon as he was born, you see? Verse five, she gave birth, or she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, Jesus Christ. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. When did that happen? After the crucifixion, Jesus Christ bodily ascended into heaven caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman, who, is, who does the woman represent? The woman represents the people of God. And it's one people of God across both testaments. The woman represents the people of God. And what do the people of God do at the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ? She fled into the wilderness. Now, why would she have fled into the wilderness? What happened after the ascension of Jesus Christ that caused a great diaspora of converted Christians to flee Jerusalem. What was it? The, martyr, the martyrdom of Stephen, persecution. Drove the saints out of the city. Everyone left except for the disciples. And what did they do when they left? Everyone went preaching the gospel of the kingdom, right? Everyone went preaching the gospel of the kingdom. She was, the woman, fled into the wilderness and Remember the time, the chronology that we're talking about here at the martyrdom of Stephen. This is the great diaspora. She fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. What is that a reference to? Listen, that's the word of God using figurative language to say this period is that. What you see, the woman fleeing into the wilderness at the martyrdom of Stephen 
under great persecution, where in her wilderness testing, she is nourished by God for 1,260 days. That's the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. And the Lord uses in Revelation that particular number as a symbolic number or of a figurative number to point to Daniel, where that number originates. And he says, this age, this period, is that. When Daniel spoke of the 70th week and 1260 days, what was Daniel talking about? Daniel was talking about this. Do you see the connection between the two? Revelation relies heavily upon Daniel. Okay. In this age of tribulation then, the age of tribulation is the time of the church's testing in the wilderness. That age of tribulation extends from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, or we could say from Revelation 12, from the great persecution of the saints at the martyrdom of Stephen, the great diaspora, until our day today and will continue until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It is a great period of testing. Testing in the wilderness. Um, that experience of tribulation, by the way, isn't a monolithic experience for the church. In other words, we're not going to face tribulation in the same way that our brothers and sisters are facing it elsewhere. And they may not face it in years to come in the way that we do. It's not a monolithic experience. It's happening all over the world. Uh, and we should be praying for our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution. The church today is suffering great tribulation. But not all of the church and not all at once. It may be, however, that the closer we approach the final days of this age, the, the, the closer that we get, as it were, to the birth of a new age, the Lord's use of that word great may refer to a more monolithic experience. And we've enjoyed a gracious peace, haven't we, for many years peace from persecution in this country, but that peace is certainly fragile and it appears to be crumbling before our eyes. Revelation chapter 7 verse 14, these are the ones, those pictured around the throne, robed in white, palm branches in their hands, worshiping the Lord. They are the ones, verse 14, they are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Considering our time, we're going to consider the second characteristic or defining mark of this multitude next time we're together. I'll close with this. Think with me. Adam fails his time of testing in the garden. Adam falls into sin, plunges the entirety of creation into misery and woe. Fails his time of testing. Israel, a great multitude, comes out of Egypt. She washes her garments. You realize that's what she does before she gets to Sinai. She washes her garments she consecrates herself to the Lord by the sprinkling of blood. All this to prepare for God tabernacling in her midst where he cares for her in the wilderness, where he nourishes her in the wilderness. Do you see the connections? Do you hear those? Right? And she fails her test in the wilderness. She fails her test. God swears in his wrath he would not, they would not enter his rest. In the same manner then, in the same manner, Jesus Christ comes, the true son of God, true Israel. Jesus Christ consecrates himself to the Lord in the waters of baptism, is immediately swept into the wilderness for his time of testing. He's tested by the devil. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, gloriously passes the test and goes on to secure salvation for the entirety of his church, his people, those who would place their faith and trust in him for salvation, Old Testament, New Testament saints, and he himself became flesh and tabernacled among us. You notice the connections. The church then, the church, 
Notice the pattern that we're talking about. Those who have been united to Jesus Christ through faith, they're delivered from their bondage to sin through the person and work of true Israel. They are sent into the wilderness of this world during a time of testing, a time of tribulation. And because they are united to the one who has secured safe passage for them, because they have been sealed by the indwelling Holy Spirit, because they have been given circumcised hearts to love and to obey him, they are the ones who come out of the great tribulation as overcomers. Do you see? Overcomers because of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of his spirit at work in them. Verse 15, therefore, on this basis, they are before the throne of God, standing. (laughs) They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do not grow weary. Do not be discouraged. Do not shrink back. We will reap if we faint not. Amen? In due season. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this encouragement from your word. Lord, thank you for helping us as we work through this book uh, to understand uh, what you intend by what you say here. We're very grateful for this opportunity to do that. Uh, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would encourage your people, fuel uh, their faith, uh, form them uh, more and more uh, into Christ's image and give us, Lord, strength, the supply that we need uh, to to endure our own testing when it comes, as it comes. May it be for your glory, may it be for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great bridegroom, as we are made ready and fit for our bridegroom the marriage supper of the lamb we pray these things for your glory in the name of your son our lord jesus christ amen hello and thanks for listening my name is mark brashear and i have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at cornerstone church near orlando florida We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.